me and my shadow. You know, we walking down that avenue. It's just me and my shadow. Not a soul to tell our troubles to. But when it's 12 o'clock, you know we'll climb that stairs and we'll never knock. For no one is there. It's just me. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Reggie's Comic Stories. This is episode number nine. My name is Reggie. Find me every other Wednesday on ChrisandReggie.com. That's the new URL without the uh, blog spot in it. And uh, opposite me on the Wednesdays that I'm not doing this show, Chris has his. Chris is on Infinite Earth, so there's a show to listen to every Wednesday. And of course, you can pick that up from iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, <coughs> excuse me, Google Play, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, etc. I'm sure there are more that I don't know anything about. So the last couple episodes, it was kind of some heavy topics. Uh, First, I had a kind of a realization I had to face about one of my comic book heroes, and then uh, last episode was sort of a commentary on uh, current events in comics, which pretty stark, some of them. Not all of them, but some of them are kind of kind of stark, kind of off-putting. This week, I thought I would do something a little more lighter than that uh, and talk not only about one of my favorite people in uh, comics and, and comics publishing, but... Uh, one of the funniest people, one of the most creative people in anything uh, besides. It's uh, Terry Gilliam, uh, and it's really an a, a, uh, essay he wrote about Harvey Kurtzman for the Atlantic Monthly in uh, 2009, I believe. We'll get to it. But Terry Gilliam, if you don't know, he is one of the members, uh, the original members of Monty Python's Flying Circus, which was a comedy uh, show on the BBC in the 70s. And then they picked it up on, on American PBS. And I bet it's still running now. I mean, it was like a mainstay for a long, long time. Uh, pretty huge for me as a kid. I thought it was hysterical. Uh, my mom kind of introduced myself and my brother to it, uh, along with Faulty Towers and the Young Ones. Had a real pension for British comedy, apparently. Uh, he, you know, also, Monty Python resulted in the movies Monty Python's Flying Circus, as well as The Life of Brian. And what was it, the, the meaning of life? Was that the other one? There was another one. Uh, so it's, you know, it's it's basically a comic institution. Uh, brought us people like Eric Idle, uh, you know, John Cleese, uh, who I still follow on Twitter, uh, Michael Palin, a bunch, bunch of guys in that. So, um, yeah, this is really sort of about Terry Gilliam, but it's about what Terry Gilliam thinks about Harvey Kurtzman and their connection uh, was very early on in Terry Gilliam's creative life, as I will uh, talk about in a moment. But, uh, of course, if you want to uh, learn about Harvey Kurtzman, we do have a Weird Comics History episode that is just an entire bio of it. Uh, very stupidly, I did not go get the number of it, but there's not that many episodes of Weird Comics History, so uh, it can't be that far back. Go check it out in the archives on uh, chrisandreggie.com. There's a full thing about Kurtzman on that. Um, also, I think we went in pretty pretty deeply on him when we did uh, Mad Magazine number four, right? I believe so, which was uh, 
Cosmic Treadmill 122-ish or something like that. Anyway, uh, so let's jump into a little bit about Terry Gilliam. He was born Terrence Vance Gilliam on November 22, 1940 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Their family moved to the Los Angeles neighborhood of Panorama City in 1952. He attended Birmingham High School there where he was president of his class, prom king, voted most likely to succeed in the yearbook, and received straight A's. I mean, this is not the normal uh, comic book origins for a, uh, a creator. You know, that would, that would happen later on, but that's, that's who he was. It was during that time that Gilliam became an avid reader of Mad Magazine. That would debut when he was 11 years old, nearing 12 years old. He graduated college in 1962 with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. And in 2003, Gilliam told Salman Rushdie, that would be the, uh, I believe, still in hiding uh, author of the Satanic Verses, who uh, at that time the Ayatollah had, had called for his beheading. Uh, anyway, but he's, he's still around. He's a journalist. And uh, in 2003, uh, Terry Gilliam said, I became terrified that I was going to be a full-time bomb-throwing terrorist if I stayed in the U.S. because it was the beginning of really bad times in America. It was 66, 67. It was the first police riot in Los Angeles. In college, my major was political science, so my brain worked that way. And I drove around this little English Hellman minx, top-down, and every night I'd be hauled over by the cops, up against the wall on all this stuff. They had this monologue with me. It was never a dialogue. It was that I was a long-haired drug addict living off some rich guy's foolish daughter. And I said, no, I work in advertising. I make twice as much as you do. Which is a stupid thing to say to a cop. And it was like an epiphany. I suddenly felt what it was like to be a black or Mexican kid living in L.A. Before that, I thought I knew what the world was like. I thought I knew what poor people were. And then suddenly it all changed because of that simple thing of being brutalized by cops. And I got more and more angry, and I just felt, I've got to get out of here. I'm a better cartoonist than I am a bomb maker. That's why so much of the U.S. is still standing. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if I agree that he should feel uh, akin to a black or a Mexican kid, but, uh, you know, that was... L.A. is known for some pretty rough cops, and I would definitely crack down on the hippie uh, set in the late 60s. So, uh, what Terry Gilliam did is he, uh, when he graduated, he moved to New York, and he went to work for Help Magazine. Now, if you listen to the thing about Kurtzman, you'll know Help Magazine was um, R.V. Kurtzman's fourth attempt, in a sense, at a magazine. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman really invented MAD uh, in its early comic book form. The first 24 issues he wrote and did the uh, explicit layouts for every single issue. And uh, when it moved to the black and white format, um, as we talked about in that MAD magazine episode, it was actually done to keep Harvey Kurtzman on because uh, Hugh Hefner of Playboy was courting him to do an adult men's mag adult humor magazine. Which he eventually did. He eventually left Mad and went on to make it a magazine called Trump uh, that folded after two issues. Then he, uh, Arnold Roth, and oh, Bill Elder was there. A bunch of people were involved in uh, really his only um, self-published thing, which was called Humbug, uh, and that had something around twenty issues. And then uh, the Warren uh, James Warren of Warren Publications. That's the uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland, as well as Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella guys. Uh, they wanted to do a, a humor magazine, so they gave him a magazine called Help! Exclamation point. And uh, it's really marked, you know, again, when you see all these, these magazines, 
you just see the the hand of Harvey Kurtzman over all of them. The whole way they're laid out, the whole way they're paced, uh, the kind of comedy, the humor they use. Um, you know, it's it's really something, uh, if not invented by Harvey, definitely perfected by this point. Although Help had its own uh, problems, primarily with uh, funding. But that's another thing altogether. So uh, what Terry's going to talk about here in his essay that he wrote for The Atlantic, uh, he's going to talk about his time working for Harvey Kurtzman at Help. When I graduated from university, I really didn't know what I was going to do. But I wrote to Harvey and said, I'm going to come to New York. I'd love to come and meet you. And he wrote me back saying, don't bother, kid. There's no job here. There's nothing. It's a hard place. But nevertheless, I went. So we agreed to meet at the Algonquin Hotel. Now, I was a great fan of the Algonquin because it was where the round table was in the 20s, where Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, and George Kaufman used to hang out and be witty and write for the New Yorker. I got there, and I remember going up the stairs, this callow youth from California, and I knock on the door, and the door opens, and inside this suite were gathered together all of my god-hero cartoonists. And then Harvey turns up. He was much smaller than I expected. Most of my heroes are. But it was wonderful. Harvey was really sweet and enthusiastic, and standing next to him was a guy named Charles Alverson, the assistant editor of Help, who had just decided to quit, and they were looking for somebody to replace him. So I got the job just like that. At Help, I had to do everything. I had to deal with whatever went on with the magazine, so I'd be on the phone talking to people in a solemn voice. Ah, uh, yes, this is Mr. Gilliam, the assistant editor of Help magazine. I'll have that package over to you in about, oh, 15 minutes, I'll tell the boy to bring it in. But that boy was me, and I was making $2 less than I would have made on the dole every week. It was wonderful. What I really loved doing was the fumetti, because I had to be, in a sense, the producer. So I would get the actors together, the props together, the costumes, find locations. Some of this was done with Harvey, sometimes it was me out there on my own. Henry Jaglom, the film director, was one of our fumetti. So was John Cleese, which is how we met. Once we, once we were doing this fumetto about gangsters, we needed a Mr. Big, and one of our gun moles happened to be dated Woody Allen. He was perfect, although Harvey was wonderfully bemused about who this guy was. I just want to cut in here for one second. Uh, fumetti, in this case. Uh, fumetti is the Italian word for comic books, but in America, it means photographs uh, arranged in a sequence with word balloons uh, a la comic strips. Uh, Help Magazine was very well known for that. Uh, later on, Marvel would kind of steal the idea for crazy. It's been done by now, I don't know, dozens of times. But when he says fumetti... That's what he means. It's kind of like uh, comics in photograph, uh, sequential photograph form. Anyway, back to Terry. He says, After help collapsed, I went hitchhiking around Europe for several months. When I came back to America, I had no home, so I lived in Harvey's attic for several months. What's so funny is life, the way it goes on. His studio was at the top of the house, and he lived up there most of the time. And in my house here in London, same thing. I live at the top of the house, and the rest of the family is below getting on with life. I seem to have adopted so much of Harvey's work ethic and the way he went about things. I think he regretted leaving Mad. He felt he'd made a big mistake which he'd never recover from. That was a great act, to just walk away. I've been emulating that ever since, and that's why I get in trouble all the time. Harvey was so obsessed with technical perfection. You've just got to get all that stuff right. But I never even noticed the things that were bothering him, because of the strength of the material. 
the freedom when he did his layouts, the way he'd put light and shade in them. He he used to always look at Gustave Doré etchings or engravings and learn from those. When he started doing Little Annie Fanny for Hugh Hefner and Playboy in 1962, I was pissed off. I never felt that Little Annie Fanny was as sharp as his earlier work. It was technically brilliant, but it always felt slightly compromised. I was too naive to realize what a rough time he'd been through. His need to make a living was paramount. I always thought he'd let Hefner take advantage of him. He'd always come back from Chicago wide-eyed and amazed by the Playboy Mansion and the Sabartic lifestyle there. To me, it felt like a bordello. But Harvey would go and just be completely transfixed. All these beautiful girls, but he couldn't touch them. Yet he wanted to be as close as possible. In many ways, Harvey was one of the godparents of Monty Python. All the smart people loved Harvey's work. The dumb people didn't. It was the same with Python. Still, I remember when he came over here in the late 60s, Monty Python's flying circus had just started. So I dragged Harvey down to Terry Jones' house to watch it. Harvey didn't like it or understand it. The show didn't click with him at all. It was one of those wonderfully disappointing moments when you really want to impress your teacher. And, phew, he didn't get it. So that's too bad, although Terry Gilliam certainly had much more uh, notoriety and financial success uh, over the years. If you want to, he's the he was the animator for Monty Python. And in fact, working on those fumetti probably helped him to, uh, you know, understand how to arrange scenes like that. And, you know, the, the, foot, the foot squashing thing in the beginning, the whole beginning titles, that was him. The Victorian weirdo stuff, that was all him uh, doing all those animations. Um, I've said this, I think, both in the Mad Magazine episode and in the Harvey Kurtzman episode, but I'm going to say it again. To really see uh, Harvey Kurtzman's genius and what he gave to uh, comics and publishing in general, you have to go check out uh, the, I think it's, it's, it's definitely Kitchen Sink, and I believe it's Dark Horse is the parent publisher now, I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, they did a reprint of Trump, of the, the two issues that were finished and the third that was unfinished, and it's that third that was unfinished that you have to look at, because it really shows, like, the his layouts were so tight and complete, he was, he wasn't, this wasn't a case of, uh, you know, some loose plotting and let the inker work it out, he pretty much was a taskmaster, and it, it was really only out of respect for him that uh, so many great artists wanted to work with him and, and for his mind. And uh, don't get me wrong, he did uh, piss off plenty of uh, other artists that didn't want to work with him because he was sort of a uh, hardliner. He knew exactly what he wanted. But if you have to steal the book, look in the library. Whatever you have to do, go look at the, the last, the end of the book. Uh, I'm even going to tell you where it is. You just go right to the end of it. That way you can, you know, look at it quickly before the... Uh, Somebody catches you, whatever, go to the bookstore, just just look at it. And you really understand what it is. Uh, it's not just a sense of humor, it's it's a timing thing. It's an understanding of the printed page that uh, not many uh, creators of any kind, I think, uh, really grasp, to be honest with you. It's a production issue, in a sense. So to wrap up a little bit about Terry, uh, like he said, he met John Cleese doing one of those fumetti for Help Magazine, and... Uh, when it folded, he did what he said. He moved, went, moved, to, went to Europe. He backpacked around. He actually ended up uh, coming back to America for a little while. Then he went back to Europe, and he uh, 
began doing animations for the BBC program Do Not Adjust Your Set, which featured Eric Idle, and then he met, became a founding member of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, he also has directed several movies. Uh, one of them is the first movie I ever saw in the theater. That was Time Bandits from 1981. That's part of what he calls a fantasy trilogy, which includes uh, Brazil from 1985, a very weird movie. And uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 1988, which is an alright movie. He also had a, a what he calls the Americana Trilogy. That would be The Fisher King in 1991, Twelve Monkeys in 1995, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas 1998. And all of that really just scratches the surface of his accomplishments. He's, he's a guy that uh, has pretty much done what he likes uh, on his own terms for his whole life uh, creatively, and you can't <clears throat> Sorry, fault him too much for that. Um, yeah, so uh, you know he was he was important to me. Now I had a feeling that even after I read what I thought was a very nice article by Terry Gilliam about Harvey Kurtzman, that would leave us here with uh, barely twenty minutes recorded. So I thought a little extra stuff. This is from an August thirty first two thousand nine partial uh, interview with Vice magazine. Terry Gilliam had some other things to say about Harvey Kurtzman that I thought you might find interesting. So Vice says, uh, I'd like to start with something that's near and dear to me. I love Mad Magazine and I love Harvey Kurtzman. So I'd like to ask you about growing up reading Mad and your eventual work with Harvey. Well, Mad was the magazine when I was a teenager, so as far as I'm concerned, it was so smart and so funny and so troublesome. It was fantastic. The bomb in the mailbox on the lettuce page. Yeah, all that stuff was freeing. It was like, wow. You couldn't wait for the next issue. And the art was brilliant. Jack Davis, Wally Wood, Willie Elder. It wasn't just destructive anarchy. It was really intelligent. They were brilliant at satirizing whatever was going on in the world, whether it was other comic strips, television, or movies. It was a fantastic, funny mirror held up to the world. So I became a huge fan of it and started learning how to cartoon like those guys. Wally Wood's women were so sexy that I felt it was possibly a form of pornography, and I used to hide the magazines from my parents because I felt guilty. That's how you know it's great art. I remember seeing the first six issues. My dad had them. I forget when the first issue came out, 52, 51, but it's still edgy today, the sex and anger are all on the surface. There was nothing else like it at the time, so there was nothing to compete with it. Every cartoonist I know from my generation was totally affected and influenced by it. Harvey became kind of a god for all of us. You got to work for Harvey at Health Magazine, along with Robert Crumb and some other greats. It was after Harvey walked out of Mad and his other magazines, Humbug and Trump, came and went. Help was what was the one that, that seemed to develop a life of its own. I was in college at the time, and some friends and I took over the school's art and literary journal and turned it into a humor magazine. Help was in many ways the model. Our magazine was called Fang. You went to Occidental College in Los Angeles, right? Yes, we started doing parodies of things like West Side Story. I sent a copy of our magazine to Harvey, and he wrote back a nice letter, and that was the end of it for me. I just had to go to New York and meet this guy. I wanted to be part of that world. I wrote him back saying I was thinking of coming to New York after I graduated, and he wrote back saying, forget about it, there's nothing for you here, we're self-sufficient. And I said, no, no, I'm coming. Nice. It was really funny. That summer I had been reading a book called Act One. It's the autobiography of Moss Hart. He was an incredibly successful playwright. 
His story was of a callow youth going to New York to meet his hero, ending up being his partner in writing. And that's what happened to me. I met with Harvey at the Algonquin Hotel, which at that point was famous for the round table where Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker and all these brilliant wits hung out in the 40s. I went up and knocked on the door of his suite. It wasn't Harvey in there, but Willie Elder and Al Jaffe and Arnold Roth. All these cartoonists were busy working on the first issue of Little Annie Fanny. Oh my god. It was like walking into Mount Olympus and there were the gods. Eventually, Harvey turned up and this is where luck enters the whole picture. The guy who was the assistant editor was quitting and they were looking for someone else to work with next to, for next to nothing. I was the kid standing there and that's how it happened. What's it like to meet and then work with someone you idolize? Well, for one thing, they come off their godlike status pedestals and become real people. Harvey was so meticulous in the way that he worked. He was a great teacher, but he gave me incredible freedom. One of the things we used to do was take photographs or engravings and then caption them. I would spend ages down in the New York Public Library going through old photos and books. I learned so much about art, about history, just by having to do this work. The magazine staff was basically four people. Jim Warren, the publisher who we never saw, Harvey, myself, and Harry Chester, who was the production guy. Harvey would be up in his attic in Mount Vernon working away, and I'd be down in his office, administering with Harry Chester and his paste-up guys. Because I was the assistant editor of the magazine, all these other young cartoonists were turning up in New York and hanging out with me. Whether it was Gilbert Shelton from Fabulous Free Freak Brothers or Bob Crumb, we were all roughly the same age. I guess they thought I was more successful since I was the assistant editor of Help, but I was getting paid $2 less a week than I would have if I had been on the dole. So, you know, he does. He uses some of these. Uh, obviously, this is a story he has told a few times, and there's a few bits that uh, pop up now and again. But that's how it is when you get to be of a certain age, folks. Uh, you start to have to turn your life into sort of a uh, bit in a way, you know, because otherwise you'll forget half of it. He won't remember any good details, but uh, yeah, you know, I I really think this whole it's it almost seems fantastical now. This idea of uh, writing to someone and then like just going across the country to uh, to see them. Maybe maybe I'm just a uh, negative person, but just does not seem like the same kind of world anymore. Where you can uh, sort of just show up at a magazine publisher because you know not and none really exists for one thing, but show up at any business and just say. What do you say you hire me, you big mug? And they're like, ah, I like your moxie, kid. You just don't see it anymore. They'd rather hire somebody that's like, uh, you know, um, what do we call it? Uh, Self-effacing and uh, work for slave wages. So um, <clears throat> that's it. I'm sorry this episode is definitely a little on the shorter side, folks. I, uh, I am in the middle of packing all of my things to move, or actually first to stage my... Uh, apartment for sale So all of my books are currently in boxes And uh, I don't have access To all the materials I wish that I had But uh, you know I, I hope you got something out of this Harvey Kurtzman will forever be A major hero to me um, You know I definitely think That he kind of got sidelined uh, The story of what happened With him and Hugh Hefner Is uh, bittersweet in a way um, Even though Hefner did give him his probably his most known role uh, in creating Little Annie Fanny for Playboy uh, magazines and probably his most lucrative work, quite frankly. Um, but 
you know, by pulling him away from Mad Magazine, uh, it created a bad situation, I think, for him. Anyway, um, that's all I got this week, folks. If uh, I'm going to try to sh- get something a little more uh, robust for the, in the, my episode in a couple of weeks, if you want to write to me, just hit me up at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. You can go over to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie, where we have uh, exclusive content, three episodes exclusive per month, and uh, just for the small amount of $5 per month. Facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mail History. On Instagram and Twitter at Cosmic T-Mail. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. And uh, you can see Chris's personal blog over at Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. He reviews a different DC comic book every day of the week from any point of their publishing history, uh, and it's pretty great. It's very thorough. I recommend you check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. And uh, while you're putting Chris in your uh, browser, you can go to ChrisAndReggie.com. That's the uh, show site. You can look at our uh, the archives and all that stuff that you love. Sometimes I, we have put extra pictures in the uh, show notes over at the blog only and stuff like that. So you never know what you're going to find if you head over to chrisandreggie.com. But thanks, everybody. Uh, Again, apologies for the short episode, but uh, it happens sometimes, I guess. I love you all, and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Oodles and oodles of O's, you know. You get them from my sister, you get them from my bro. All I is is man and once an embryo. Am I solid gold? I don't cast a glow. Yes, I guess it's reflex. Some have no control. I'd rather let a laughter and tally off my dough. Canoeing up the river or out into the hole. You just know we're not, so not play the role. Some in lovey-dovey, I hear crazy throw. Some shake your hand, but this is called the show. I was John Doe, now I'm Mr. Jolico Pissed with the witness, and now I adult O's got the world, cause O's was on tour Girls gave the O's and guys O's for sure Where they arose, well nobody knows What do they mean, well here's how it goes Those shoots got the O's, when you hold a dough You know who you are, but they didn't know And now with respect, they flex like a pro You're first a nugget, nugget, but now an afro Oodles and oodles